0: Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast, Season Six, Episode Four. You know
1: different ways of training. You know different um, different cultures. I guess like the ski culture is very different from the football culture. So as a as a coach, you don't necessarily know who you're going to be working with. So being that chameleon, be able to bounce back and forth and work with different groups, I think is definitely beneficial. This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know, but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning, and then there's everything else.
0: Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. I'm Eric McMahon. Today, we're joined by Brett Kelly, a performance coach and the general manager of Exos in the St. Louis area. Brett, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to connect with you today. You've had some really cool experiences working in your time at US Ski and Snowboard. And now in the private sector, I think there's a lot to talk about. I was uh, digging into your background. saw you had a really uh, versatile athletic background, a number of different sports. So I want to give you a chance to start off and talk about your role at Exos.
1: Yeah, so uh, right now, um, actually over the summer, I got moved up to the general manager role here at Exos. Um, So we're partnered up with a local hospital here in St. Louis, uh, Mercy. So it's Mercy Sport Performance powered by Exos is the site. Uh, So we work right with a bunch of physical therapists, a bunch of athletic trainers um, that are in the hospital setting. And then upstairs in our gym, um, about a 5,000 square foot facility with, you know, turf. Um, We have two other coaches that work with us and we have adult classes, sport performance classes. Most of those are like high school kids. We have some youth classes, um, about 15 different teams that come and train with us. Most of them are hockey, just because we're inside of a hockey facility. Um, And then the big reason that Mercy wanted to partner up with Exos to have uh, a place to send some of their athletes or adults uh, who are in PT and have graduated or have uh, ran out of insurance basically. And they can send them to a place where they can actually do some later stage rehabs. We do a lot of late stage rehab in our bridge classes. Um, a lot of ACLs, but, you know, you get the herniated discs or, you know, the ankle, shoulders, whatever you have going on.
0: You grew up snowboarding and skiing and uh, a lot of different sports, but, you know, that was a passion for you and it uh, led you to pursuing an internship with US Ski and Snowboard. And then after a short stint in professional baseball, you you went back on full time as an athletic performance coach. Uh Talk about that a little bit, your experience working with Olympic athletes. I know we're right in the thick of it right now with, uh, with the Olympic Games.
1: Yeah, honestly, it was it was like a dream job that I didn't know was my dream until it, it kind of became a thing, right? Because, you know, I decided to be a strength conditioning coach when I was in college and go down that route. And I'd always thought about working with the sports that I had played, right? I think most of us naturally lean towards that. Um, I was biggest probably in football, I started playing rugby in college, working with those kind of teams, and then I've actually have not worked with any of those teams throughout my career, and I uh, ran into an internship just, I think it was on NACA's website, and I was looking for internships and saw one with the U.S. ski team, and I kind of connected the dots of like my passion for skiing and snowboarding with my passion for strength conditioning. You know, of course, those people have strength coaches, but that just never, never occurred to me for some reason, so it was really cool to actually get in the doors and the internship was the year before the sochi games so i was able to see what the prep year was like for an olympic year which is um, really awesome because you have a lot of the athletes that will move to park city train specifically for that summer there um, so you have everybody in-house the way it's set up um, it's not at the ios it's not at the olympic training center just like in colorado springs it's in park city utah it's strictly the skiing and snowboarding facility um so we actually as interns got split up. So I worked with moguls as an intern and, you know, it was just really cool to be able to go with them and watch them jump off the jumps in, uh, into the water in the morning. Um, and then, you know, I did the warmups there and then have them come back and actually train on the trampolines and then train um, obviously in the weight room and then go eat their lunch, uh, work with their dietitian, all that kind of stuff. And then that obviously grew as I uh, got on board about was it four years later, um, when I took on the role of working with uh, U.S. Free Ski and U.S. Aerials. Um, so like if you're watching X Games, half pipe, slope style, so all the jumps and rails, that's all free skiing. And then aerials is they'll go off the uh, one large jump and do usually three flips with three to five twists. They're all crazy people. Um, but uh, I got invited to kind of work with some of those athletes, and that turned into a full-time role. And I think the biggest thing that I took out of that was – you know with free skiing being such a young sport there was a lot of kids at the time who were in their prime in that sport that never really worked out right and it was really trying to change that culture um so we had really good coaches on board along with uh, myself and some other coaches who helped try to push that culture and we got some of those older athletes that saw the benefit in strength and conditioning you know they saw it through the lens of injuries because they you know were now 28 29 which for free skiing is a little bit older and they had to, you know, use the gym to stay in there and stay in their sport. So um, we kind of utilized them to talk to some of the younger athletes. And now I feel like when I talk to the coaches that work with them now, it's just part of the culture. And from the from the time they're 11 years old going off the jump, you know, they know that strength and conditioning is part of it. And they know that the Olympics is part of free skiing. Um, so I was kind of there right at that transition of that sport, which was really cool.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I liked how you said that, you know, as athletes are discovering their need for strength and conditioning, a lot of times it is through an injury lens because, uh, something has taken them off the mountain or off the field, you know, that, that they need to, uh, they need to bounce back from. And so sometimes rehabilitation is a bridge into full-fledged strength and conditioning for, for those who maybe don't have a great foundation or background in, in training. Um, On this Olympic topic, you know, a lot of people don't realize the level of competition that occurs in the months, year, years uh, before an Olympic Games. I want to give you a chance to share that from your experience. You know, what does the typical training day look like for a U.S. ski and snowboard athlete? And uh, in just how much are they competing in the in the time up to the games?
1: Yeah, so obviously everybody knows about the Olympics every four years. Um, there's, you know, every two years there's world champs. That's kind of that next biggest thing behind the Olympics for everybody. Um, and then you have world cups every year. So depending on the sport, they'll have five to 10 world cups that they'll compete in. Um, and then for my, some of my athletes, they had X games as well, which, you know, for those extreme sport athletes, that's something that they grew up watching as that was like the only competition. So for most of them, that really means more than a world cup, um, just, you know, kind of in their hearts, right. That's always what they wanted as a kid. So those are big events as well. As far as like training in the off season, how their day-to-day usually goes. Um, again, for the way my athletes worked and they're all acrobatic athletes, um, the mornings we'd usually wake up and go either to the water ramps or to the airbag ramps, which is all you know, used in the summer. Do their warm ups. Um, they'd go and do one or two sessions depending on the day. You know, if it was a two session day, usually they'd come back and do some recovery workouts with me or even just spin and stretch on their own if they needed to. Um, they, if it was a regular, you know, one day on the ramp session, they would come in and do their workouts with me, have lunch, maybe have dinner if they're there long enough. Some of them would be going to physical therapy to just to get stuff worked on. Everybody's got nagging injuries going on all the time. Um, so getting some manual therapy done. And then again, depending on their schedule, um, they'd hop on the trampolines. Um, sometimes that's to work on s- some specific trick. Sometimes that's when all five of them are on the trampoline and, in the skate park, just having fun because that's what they do. And that's what they love doing. Um, and then hopefully go home and go to sleep, but we all know how that goes.
0: <laughs> I'm smiling every time you say trampoline. Cause I don't think too often we think of a, a trampoline as a, a training device, but in some of these aerial sports, it's a huge part of the sport and just the level of the athleticism required for just that kinesthetic awareness in the air. And, uh, we, we get to see that for, for most of us every four years. I think it's a really cool athletic community, the the Olympic movement. And I think some coaches do aspire to work in that. I uh, want to ask you about, you know, pursuing careers to work with Olympic athletes. What advice do you have for young coaches that, you know, how would they go about that? Or what are some of the early steps that you think would be significant milestones in Uh, being able to get into an NGB or with the uh, uh, U.S. Olympic Committee?
1: Yeah, I think, um, I mean, most of the people that I worked with that, you know, either above, or like before me or after me that kind of got into it, um, usually they had some kind of, you know, like you said earlier, some kind of internship with, you know, whether it be U.S. ski team or NTG or something else is, especially if you're trying to work with skiing and snowboarding, there are tons of skiing and snowboarding academies all around the U.S., And they all usually have like one strength coach for sometimes a couple hundred kids. Um, So I know a lot of them have internships. Um, A lot of our interns when I was with the ski team started off by helping out at some of those facilities. Um, And then they ended up working with us on the national level. And then obviously it's just at that point networking, right? So kind of like any job, same way I got into baseball, same way people get into other sports as well. Um, You know, Try to get connected with the people that are already in those sports, whether it be coaches, On the field or coaches like strength coaches, you know, offer your services, you know, you're not going to get paid right away. I think that's um, something that people need to understand, right? And I looked at it as just more schooling, really, because I learned a lot more in my internships probably than I did during my master's program because it was so hands-on, right? And I'm not paying that tuition. So for me, it was a cheaper schooling, honestly. And then I ended up making those connections. Um, I got to work with people that were way better coaches than me um, and kind of helped you know mold me as a coach and then just keep those connections going I mean like I said that's how I got working with baseball Um, I got kind of pushed that way by some of my mentors just because there was a lot of opportunity there and I just stayed connected with everybody and um, you know just as a friend as a colleague and they reached back out when there were some openings so that's kind of how my how my path went.
0: And that really resonates you know with with me and I pursued professional baseball for a long time, but it was something that, you know, playing small college football, you know, you consider, Hey, do I want to be a football strength coach? Or, you know, obviously there's a lot of great basketball positions out there, but baseball, there was a lot of opportunity, um, early two thousands, you know, and, and now you look at the Olympic movement and like you mentioned, finding opportunities to work with these somewhat niche or unique sports, It's, uh, it's a, there's so many opportunities out there for coaches to pursue. It's just, you might have to advocate for yourself and push a little bit to to get yourself in the door and it can lead to some really cool places. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. I know with, uh, you know, with all those sports, if you look at the Olympic sports, most of them are, like you said, pretty niche sports. Like those kids are training right for, I mean, obviously the four years before, they're training their entire lives to get to that point usually. So, you know, looking at where those youth development programs are, because, you know, there's not very many of them. And if there are, they're at least connected and everybody knows each other in that community. You know, I know people in the free ski community, it's free ski community all across the country, just because you know, you're going to events and everybody's there, right? Same thing with like the aerials community or bobsleigh community. There's only so many places those people train. So reaching out to those people, you know, most of those sports don't have a huge budget, right? Because they're they're not NBA, they're not baseball. So they're probably very willing to work with people and uh, for free, and you can really hone your skills and then gain some experience working with those sports.
0: Yeah, I want to dig back into your background, multi-sport background. We talk a lot about long-term athlete development at the NSCA, uh, but skiing and snowboarding, it really uh, connects with what we're talking about because there's all these high school ski and snowboard academies out there where being on the mountain is really part of your part of your school day. Uh, and it's a really good example in place where high school strength and conditioning is very relevant and, and important. And, uh, it will re- it brings us to when these athletes need to be ready to go out for a, for a national team or, or a college team. And so, um, Bring that to your experience a little bit in becoming a strength and conditioning coach. You know, that whole long term athlete development concept, playing a lot of different sports. Do you think that was impactful in the in the path you chose?
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I was I was a gym rat. I was always in the gym, uh trying to get better at my sports. Um, so my main sport was football. You know, growing up, I did everything from you know soccer, I did t ball, I wasn't good at that. <laughs> and uh did you know when I was in high school or middle school I guess I started getting into uh, strength and conditioning just through my coaches through football that was something that I always just enjoyed doing and enjoyed getting better at and I saw how that helped me on the field as well Uh, I did discus um, that was mainly so I could keep lifting in the spring Uh, and then like I said I did rugby in college I did swimming growing up as well so I think All those different sports, they're all gonna have different things, right? That you're gonna be getting a little bit better at that can kind of help you in those other sports as well. Um, And that's something I saw too as a coach when I was um, with the ski team or with other teams as well. But skiing is such a specific sport. You have a lot of kids that grew up in ski towns and that's the only thing they've done. And you know, I would have a handful of kids that grew up playing multiple sports and you could literally just watch them test or watch them do some of their workouts like when they first come in. And I could tell just by watching even if they're, you know, 18 or 19 or 20 or whatever, I can tell this person was playing these sports growing up. This person has only skied um, growing up. So I think it's very important for youth athletes. Um, I think as a coach, it's important as well, just cause you're kinda, you know, you, you know different ways of training, you know, different, uh, different cultures, I guess, like the ski culture is very different from the football culture. So as a, as a coach, you don't necessarily know who you're gonna be working with. So being that chameleon, be able to bounce back and forth and work with different groups, I think is definitely beneficial.
0: Brett, bridge that to what you're doing now. You know, talk about your current role with Exos, working in a hospital system primarily, and you work with a wide range of clients and athletes. Uh, you know, how did your Olympic and work with elite, elite athletes uh, lead you into success where you're at now?
1: Um, yeah, I think kind of, again, bridge enough what I just talked about, like uh, being that, being able to be that chameleon as a coach, you know, when somebody's coming in, You know, you don't necessarily know what mood they're in Uh, when you're having new people come in, you don't really know what type of person that is. So being open as a coach and being able to talk to people, I think that's something that's sometimes lost um, on young coaches that I've seen is that communication piece. You know, if I can't have a a real conversation person to person with my athletes or my clients, then that's going to be like a hard task or hard um, relationship to have with them. Right. So they're entrusting you with getting them better and getting them towards their goals, uh, whether that be getting them to the Olympics or having them, you know, lose weight so they can play soccer with their kid, right? So to me, it's really very similar still, like everybody's coming in for a goal and how can we almost look at that, what that goal is, and then take a step back and then backtrack what we need to do to get to that goal. So all it is, is kind of deconstructing what what that end goal is as a coach. So whether that be a sport that I don't necessarily know, like when I first started here, right, I started working with a bunch of hockey teams. I've never worked with hockey in my entire life, but I know what hockey is and I can watch hockey games and I can get an idea of what their training's like and talk to people and stuff. So we know what their needs are. We know what their um, common injuries are um, and then build a program that way. So same thing when, you know, you have somebody coming in with an injury or somebody coming in that's overweight, you're just trying to build those goals up and then build those relationships. I think is the biggest piece, honestly.
0: Yeah. I want to ask you, you know, you've been in the field long enough and in a lot of different places, you know, what are some of the things you're seeing in the field today that are different than, than when we started with this, or some of the things that you're excited about that uh, are really on the horizon that you're, that you're seeing? Yeah, I
1: think um, as far as like difference or things that I struggle with sometimes is, I feel like people sometimes get niched into one specific way of doing things. And I think that's only gotten more and more like niche. I don't know if that's from social media or what, because sometimes you see, you know, people utilizing certain exercises because maybe because they look cool or because it's, it's part of the group that they're in. So if I see myself as a power lifter, I'm only going to coach as as a power lifter, right. Um, Or, or whatever. It might be a functional coach. Um, But I think being able to utilize all that stuff. Right. So I think, Looking at again, what that end goal is and then what is best for that person to do. I love doing power cleans, but I'm not necessarily gonna be doing power cleans with my youth hockey players that all have shoulder injuries from getting checked in the board all the time. Um, you know, I'm gonna be doing dumbbell jumps or something with them. So try to incorporate all that stuff. You know, everybody's gonna need some type of functional movement, right? Everybody's gonna need some type of speed training, whether that's, you know, like pseudo speed training with, uh, with like a mom who you're just doing skips with. Um, everybody's going to need lateral work. Everybody's going to need unilateral work, uh, bilateral, all that kind of stuff. So I think being able to look at strength conditioning as a whole and look at what your needs actually are and utilizing that is something that that's definitely needed sometimes.
0: Coming out of COVID-19, a lot of coaches going through career transitions, and sometimes that includes moving out of what we'd say traditional strength and conditioning roles in the college or, or professional level into, into the private sector. Uh, I think it's it's actually really encouraging to see more coaches doing that. You know, not every coach goes into this field thinking, hey, I'm going to be an entrepreneur and, and build a business or uh, work in the private sector in that way. Uh, and it's an area in coaching that is really defining itself. We look at some of the major facilities, Exos being one of them, uh, that, that has expanded throughout the country over over a number of years now. Uh, what do you think the biggest challenges are for coaches that make the jump from college or the professional level, and now they find themselves in a more corporate fitness environment, but still working as strength and conditioning coaches? What are you seeing there?
1: Um, my, well, I think my two biggest issues or challenges I have coming in is, you know, when I have a team, right, generally those people are coming in and, you know, at least when I was with the ski team, it was like, I could be working with them for an hour and a half or two hours. I know college coaches, it's different, right? When it's here, it's like a set hour. So I just got to make sure those time slots uh, fit a little bit. That's an easy, easy thing to fix. But that was something that definitely was adjusted for me. Um, also just the business side of things. Like before this, I never did anything business related. Now I'm the general manager here. So obviously I'm doing a lot of sales and uh, type stuff. I'm, which for me is just talking to people. um So being open to doing that kind of stuff, being open to uh, doing sales and not feeling like a used car salesman sometimes. So like when I go to events, I just try to have conversations with people, um, you know, be truthful. People try to help them out the same way you would as a coach. And again, this comes back to building those relationships. And if you are building those relationships and they trust you, then they're going to come in and and work with you as well, just like your athletes would. So um, it's weird at first, but I think once you kind of wrap your head around it, It's um, it's very beneficial. And I think the private sector is definitely growing. The online sector is definitely growing. Um, And I think that's just, you know, going to increase the amount of opportunities for coaches to, you know, make a salary that they can live off of long-term. And I know a lot of coaches get burned out with hours and low salaries and stuff. And I've been there as well. Um, So that's one reason that we kind of made the jump. We wanted to move back closer to our family in St. Louis. And, you know, this is an opportunity that helped us do that and helped us, have me, and my wife, have the hours and uh, to spend with our family, and um, you know, not be traveling quite as much either.
0: I want to dive into that a little bit more, and it, it re- connects with me personally. But I think so many coaches go through this at various stages. We get into this field, and we uh, we have a lot of ideals and a lot of big goals at times. You know, to work in the Olympics or work at a with a professional sport or with a you know a major college team. And life happens, right? And there's a lot of different factors that maybe you don't account for and you get into your thirties, forties, uh, even beyond, and, uh, you start considering other things that are important to you. Uh, you know, what are the, what are some of those challenges or conversations that you've had that really relate to where strength and conditioning could improve? Uh, related to just sustainability and viability of this profession over, over the lifespan of the coach.
1: Yeah. I've had a lot of conversations with young coaches and even our, just our coaches here that I work with about that kind of stuff. And, you know, I work here with a bunch of physical therapists and athletic trainers and I think trying to make our profession fall more in line with kind of uh, how theirs are as well, I think would help. Um, I mean, we all know as strength coaches. That you know, this is a legitimate profession, but I think somebody that knows nothing about strength and conditioning just see us as trainers sometimes. So, I think being able to have some uh, more specific and stringent, you know, protocols for testing or, um, you know, certifications that are more specific that everybody has to do, like more like boards, right? Where this is the standard you have to do to be a strength and conditioning coach. I think that would only help the profession in the long term. Um, I know there's going to be a lot of pushback on that from old school strength coaches, but I think, you know, they can still, people still work as personal trainers as well. But I think, you know, when you're talking like strength conditioning for the professional teams or for the college setting or whatever it might be, being able to distinguish yourself from that personal training level and that it is different. Um, I think, I think something like that is really where I would like the future of strength conditioning to go. So I think it's just going to help the profession as a whole um, I know some of the teams I've worked with in the past, the White Sox were really good at this. Their uh, their staff was really good at, you know, promoting how good our strength conditioning staff was and how much it was needed. Um, and the ownership, uh, you know, relayed that by, you know, increasing salaries and making sure people were sticking around. Right. So they saw the benefit in that. And because of that, the salaries went up because of that people stayed around, you know, they put maybe more effort into it because their hours weren't as crazy. So they made it more of a sustainable, um, thing i know baseball has started going that way more um but when i was there i got lucky enough to work with the Sox, who was kind of that first team to do that from uh, rookie ball all the way up through major leagues and they had tons of coaches that have been there for 10 years because of that versus some of the other teams that just have turnover and turnover because they're just grabbing a strength coach from middle of nowhere and it's probably because you know the owners or whoever's making those decisions don't necessarily see that benefit as they do as a you know, as a physical therapist or
0: an athletic trainer. Yeah, going back, you know, for those that don't work in the baseball world or haven't had that experience, you know, the job of the strength and conditioning coordinator used to be training and retraining the interns in spring training. You had a one-month yeah. crash course, and uh, and you didn't know if those those interns would would be back the following year, and then you threw them out to an affiliate and you got lucky sometimes and sometimes you didn't and you just may, you got through the season, but we are in a lot better place. Now the White Sox did a lot of uh, great work in bringing back their staff every year. That was such a significant push within the game that maybe we didn't see uh, have the same types of issues in college of just uh, a turnstile of, of your entire coaching staff every single year. Uh, but teams did start to follow that. And that is more of a norm now. It's tough to tackle these big things because we're sort of boots on the ground coaches. Uh, but in the field itself, you know, what are some of the big continuing education areas or, uh, you know, resources that you've latched onto that may be outside the normal scope of strength and conditioning uh, in your career?
1: Um, I would say, you know, one of my biggest things I got from working with the ski team was to really dive in deep with, uh, their exercise physiologist there, uh, Dr. William Sands, and he's published more things than I probably will ever read in my life. And so he was a great guy to, uh, a good resource to talk to and ask questions about. And he really, um, brought me and some of the other coaches in and just taught us so much, um, about force plates and about, uh, just monitoring athletes, different ways to monitor athletes, uh, you know, why, what we're looking at, all that kind of stuff. So that's something I kind of latched onto and I latched onto it so much that when I came to St. Louis, I bought my own pair of force plates um, from Force Dex. So that's that's the cheapest way to buy force plates. And then actually um, it just gives you the raw data. And then, you know, pushing out all the information over to uh, Google Sheets and then just making it auto, you know, calculate all your information for you. So I still utilize that here at Exos. That's not an Exos thing. That's not a Mercy thing. That's something that I do with our bridge athletes. It's something that I enjoy doing and I think it's beneficial for them as well. Um, I know a lot of the, the physical therapists and physicians here, I'll send them over the results and, you know, they love, love seeing that kind of stuff. And because of that, they've sent us more people. Um, so I think that's helped the business as a whole, but really I'm just looking at, you know, uh, asymmetries from counter movement jumps, from drop jumps, from static jumps. Uh, we do an ISO back squat. I've done ISO belt squats before stuff like that. Um, so for me, that was something that I think when I got into strength conditioning, you know, originally I'm just thinking strength and conditioning. And then all of a sudden I'm doing stat work and Excel work on my computer for hours on end of the night. So I can get the data that I collected or whatever, which was not something that I probably was foreseeing that my career path going down, but it's something I enjoy doing.
0: It's interesting. You know, a lot of strength coaches go to grad school and get master's degrees. And that's really the first place you get exposed to high level research and research methods. And then you get into coaching and those kind of fly out the window for, you know, you don't really need to, uh, crunch the numbers, or at least you didn't used to, uh, have that need. And, and now those are really relevant skills for coaches Uh, Even managing an Excel file or um, even a larger data set over multiple years and being able to uh, pull the information that you want, make it meaningful, make it impactful. We're still kind of in that in-between stage where we might be uh, overloading uh, some of our coaches with, with the wrong type of information. And we're learning a lot about the collaboration communication side of it. Uh, it's exciting. We're doing a lot at the NSCA right now with our sports science initiative, and um, it's cool to see that you've kind of grown into using more technology, even even uh, away from elite sport, where I think it uh, where I think we typically align with high level sports science initiatives. That's a question I want to ask you. You know, related to performance technology, what landscape do you see in the technology and sports science space as it relates to work with general population clients or young athletes that you really just don't know where they're going to progress?
1: Um, I guess with, again, it goes back to the force plate stuff. It's, I have the most experience with that. Um, And I think, you know, my force plates I have set up here just because of, uh, uh, you know, honestly didn't have enough money to, to buy some Hawkins or something nicer. So, um mine is you know it takes probably about a half an hour to really run all the testing and run all the data with one athlete so it's kind of hard to do that on a bigger scale but ideally if I had that you know that nicer software where that stuff comes out right away like we did with the ski team being able to utilize that on a weekly basis with my teams um, that's what I did when I was in Utah so you know every every week we would do some kind of strength test. We do some power tests and then we would do some power endurance tests and I would break that up and just have that as part of their warm part of their warm-up. So I would do it or whatever interns would help do it. And that's something where you're not only getting uh, performance numbers that you can go back on if they um, have an injury, but you can also kind of look at it. And that's one of the multiple things I can look at to see if we are getting the results that we want or if we're pushing them too hard or not enough or something like that. So I think being able to utilize that stuff for the general public is something um, that I would love to do for some of my teams for my sport performance teams. Um, We have so many kids that come in here and anybody that works with youth sport performance will understand this who come in and they're in seven different sports or something. And it's like, you know, is you being in here helping you at all today, you know, let's let's adjust, let's do this instead do some recovery, but being able to actually have some numbers that we can take back to mom and dad might help that conversation um, versus just telling them that they're doing too much.
0: Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And that's an area of performance technology we don't talk a lot about. Uh, you know, we we see that need in professional sports. We see that need in college sports, high-level college sports, uh, really competitive teams. But there is this entire Wearable technology space out there that, uh, that that impacts everybody. You know, just think of how much we do on our cell phone or with our with our our Apple watches, uh, and just being able to track basic information. And as those as those technologies grow and uh, and get into the performance space a little bit more. Uh, it's going to be some really cool integrated performance data that that we have the potential to capitalize on as a profession um yeah
1: one thing i'm doing
0: right now is you know the athletes come in and when they do their
1: regular tests um, with with our you know exo specific tests that we've kind of all picked out as a powered by group um i'm just trying to collect all that data and collect what sports they're in and collect their ages so we can go back and and look at what those standards are because right now it's you know I can tell you what where you are within your team, but I don't know if that team's the average, right? I don't know if maybe half your team is way above average and you're actually above average, but you're at the bottom of your team or something. So um, the thought process obviously is hopefully between all of our sites, we can have a lot of that data that we can put together and we can say, hey, if you're a you know 13-year-old soccer player, like you should be between you know X and Z as far as your score.
0: Yeah, just some some baseline norms, and that's been mm-hmm. I'd say there was a push for a lot of those uh, testing directories, you know, early in the, you know, or early in the two thousands or even in the late nineties when numbers were a little simpler. But now we have a lot more metrics, and so we're really starting over and in, in building building up what the norms are and what the expectations are. And then there's also numbers that. Uh, They're more along a continuum or, um, you know, their ratios versus versus just raw numbers that can be, you know, more is better kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. um, No, this is really cool, man. I think it's uh, cool to see how your career has progressed from, uh, you know, just being a versatile athlete, doing a lot of different things and progressing into coaching like a lot of us do, following your passion in sports. I kind of took you towards the Olympic movement and now into uh, the more corporate and uh, private sector side of the field. And this is so relevant. So many coaches can connect with uh, with your path. And I think it's uh, it's really cool to hear what you're doing. I want to give everybody listening a chance. If If you want to reach out to Brett, what's the best way to do that?
1: Um, I mean, they can email me if they want to. Um, it's D-R-E-T dot K-E-L-L-Y at teamexos.com. Exos is E-X-O-S. Um, also, you know, the main social media I'm on usually is Instagram. So it's just my initials, B-K underscore strength coach. Um, so you can follow me there. So try to post there somewhat regularly and feel free to message me if you have some questions. I know how it is to be a young strength coach. I'm always trying to help them out as much as possible. So we have a couple here that are, um looking for some positions and stuff and it's kind of funny uh, for this conversation talking about like all the internships and how to get you know to certain places you know one conversation I just had with one of the young strength coaches was you know it's okay to go from this current like paid job to you know an unpaid internship if it makes sense for you and your career path and what you want to do overall and you know kind of changing his mindset there I think opened up the amount of opportunities that he's going to have um to what he can be doing next after this so Um, Yeah, reach out if you have questions.
0: Greg Kelly with Exos, based out of the St. Louis area, formerly U.S. Ski and Snowboard, a little time in professional baseball. Great conversation today. Uh, To our listeners, thanks for tuning in. And also, thank you to Sorenax Exercise Equipment. We appreciate their support. Hi, this is Ivan Lewis, head strength conditioning coach the Seattle Seahawks. Thanks for listening to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts to have the latest episodes delivered right to you. Also, take your career forward by joining the NSCA's Registered Strength and Conditioning Coach Program. Learn more about becoming an RSCC at nsca.com slash
1: This was the NSCA's Coaching Podcast.